I should probably just say it right now. Is it GunnerCreekCourt.com, Todd? Do you know? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. Uh, listeners, all of this is available for free. Actually, on- it's not. It's GunnerCreek.com. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Jarowski here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Coyote and Jones in Gunner Krieg Court, created by Tom Siddell. Gunner Krieg Court is a webcomic that has new pages added three times a week. It first started in 2005. So uh, the first 14 chapters of Gunner Krieg Court were collected and printed in a book by Archaea Press, and there are currently 54 chapters and over 1,500 pages online. There was about a, a split second where I thought, maybe I could just read it all and just be... <laughs> <laughs> um, that did not happen. We're just going to be talking about two chapters of it uh, that will uh, that are some of the more recent uh, chapters. Uh, so even though it started as a part-time project in 2012, Tom Siddell announced that Gunner Creek Court was popular enough that he'd left his job to focus on it full-time. So well done. Yeah, That's he, awesome. He was living the dream, and, well, he was, I guess, struggling through the dream, as so many do, doing the part-time thing, and then it was uh, became significant enough that he was able to just live the dream now. That's awesome. I wonder if that's I wonder if he would say right now that he's living the dream. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's still work. I'm, <laughs> it's sure it's, I'm sure it's a lot of work. <laughs> yes, but it's pretty awesome. So, Todd, how did we come to this one? Do you want to tell the story? I will tell the story. So, uh, a couple of months ago, we sent out maybe a few months ago, we sent out a call to our listeners uh, asking if anybody would submit artwork for a potential logo for our podcast. And our listener, Alana Howlett, uh, responded with our awesome new logo. And when she did so, then we said, you get to pick. And she said, this is what she wanted to do. <laughs> I think both of us said, okay, that sounds interesting. <laughs> so I was not familiar with this at all. Nor was I. But uh, read, I've read these two chapters that she recommended, and they are pretty awesome. Yeah, so she said... Um... It's chapters 39 and 40 are the ones we're going to be talking about. And she said those were two that she'd recommend, even if we weren't familiar with the whole thing. And that worked because I, neither you or I have read anything besides these two <laughs> chapters right now. <laughs> like you, I, I had a goal, but uh, there, there's so many things in life. <laughs> I did start reading. I did start reading kind of from the beginning, and it's pretty cool. The first, the first little story is awesome. I like it. Well, I, I, I am definitely intrigued enough that I, I plan, you know, when that free time presents itself, when that fairy comes and deposits <laughs> my free time. The free uh, time fairy. Yes. I'm, I'm going to use that free time to, to catch up on some of this. Yeah. It's very cool. Uh, so, uh, I don't know if, if our listeners know exactly what a webcomic is. I don't know. <laughs> Do you wanna, you're the, you're the expert here. Yeah. So, um, Web comics are just—I uh, mean—they're they're comics that are found primarily, or at least initially, on a, a web uh, site. As was said with this one, sometimes they do end up getting collected. Um, the internet, in one of its many positive aspects, <laughs> is—you know—removes a lot of the middleman when it comes to creative creative works. So, I mean, traditionally there were massive gatekeepers that would have prevented. Or that you would have had, at least had to pass through before you could publish something or you could, you know, uh, produce a video that'd be seen by people or anything like that. And the internet, you know, has removed that middleman now. Or, it's, uh, or a podcast. Yes. <laughs> For example. <laughs> yes. Now it's, uh, more about mass access than mass production. 
And so people who maybe would have struggled or gotten rejection notices from a lot of major publishers can just start putting their work out there and uh, try and garner a following. And I'm sure I don't, I have no idea what the success rate is, but there are definitely success tales of people who have exclusively put their work online and, and found a large audience. And I think this is one of those successes. So from what I understand, uh, initially web comics were, basically exclusively independent works from people who probably would not or have been or didn't see publishing with a major publisher as an option. But it seems like recently maybe some really mainstream uh, comic book artists and writers are producing kind of their own indie stuff online. Yeah, and... Yes, uh, that's definitely true. And there's some interesting aspects of it in that um, there's there's a comic book theorist, probably the most famous theorist, Scott McCloud, mm-hmm. um, and and he he has a famous book called Understanding Comics, but he's done a couple of subsequent works, and he argues that the internet is going to be a space that allows for like the most innovative and imaginative comics ever because there's really no you're not contained by the page. Um, so this Gunner Creek Court, it follows a basic, I mean, you could see this being printed out in a, in a classic comic book fashion, but Scott McCloud says really like, because you can scroll an infinite amount in any direction, online comics could really do anything. Like right. it's only limited by the imagination of how they want to guide the, the reader's eyes or force the reader to scroll to find the next panel or, you, you know, all these other things. And so he's, he really pushes online comics to be more, uh, innovative. Uh, but I, I still think the majority of them follow either like a classic newspaper grid, um, or still are pretty closely aligned with what you'd see in a traditional comic book as far as the size and format. All right. Perhaps the best example of innovative or at least experimental webcomic would be XKCD, which has things like every, every daily comic or not daily, but a few times a week, uh, the comic, when you scroll your mouse over it, there will, if, and if you hover it there, there will pop up an extra joke mm-hmm. or there's some that do play with the use of space or the ability for the page to be animated in some degree. Yes. Or, um, I mean, things that you would not have seen in traditional publication, like uh, dinosaur comics, which uses the exact same layout every single time. and <laughs> just changes the word balloons. Really? Uh, it's pretty much the same layout. I, I mean, I haven't gone through all there's of them. Some there's a few variations, it. but there's kind of like a, a few templates that they use and they just change the word balloons. Uh, and, but things like you hover the mouse over it and you get a different title for the comic. You know, that's kind of an in-joke based on what you just read and that sort of thing. Right. Okay, cool. So uh, will you give us a spoiler-free synopsis of what uh, Gunner Creek Court is all about? I will. Uh, a young girl named Antimony Carver attends a strange scientific boarding school named Gunner Creek Court, around which is a strange mystical forest, and a blend of science fiction, fantasy, and mythology ensues. <laughs> At least that's what I've gathered <laughs> okay. from the two chapters that I've read and uh, looking at uh, the, the... Well, there's a wiki page dedicated solely to Gunner Creek Court, so there's like a, a Gunner Creek Court wiki. And then there's a Wikipedia page about it. And, and between those and some of the about information on the main Gunner Creek Court website, that's what I was able to gather is the larger, <laughs> larger story. Do understand, dear listener, that we are basing <laughs> our, all of our judgment of this 1500 plus page work on maybe 30 pages, 30 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's a lot that we do not know about this. Certainly as far as like the larger mythology, it's, some of it was a bit murky. I just dove in, um, which at the same time as like with TV shows, I struggled to do that. Like if, 
I'm going to jump into the middle of the series. I'd rather just go back and find the first episode and yeah. watch from there. But my, ex- I, I mean, some of that maybe like our current style of consuming entertainment makes it so that access is so much easier than when we were mm-hmm. kids. <laughs> you know, when we were kids or teenagers, like what was on was what was on largely. It was hard to find the back issues or anything like that. But I remember the first issue of X-Men that I picked up. It was the finale of a multi-part story <laughs> and it had characters that... I knew nothing about, there was no explanatory page giving a, a synopsis of what had happened thus far in the story. And there was no explanation of who these characters were. I was just in the deep end and I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> like it just made me want to find out everything I could about these characters. And it's been a long time since I've started a narrative in the middle, like we did with this because, uh-huh. uh, so because listener Alana recommended these chapters that are coming, you know, pretty far into this larger narrative and because I didn't have time <laughs> to go back and read all 1500 pages, I just dove in and it was kind of, uh, I guess invigorating maybe to just, just say, I'm going to figure this out from the context that I'm given right here. How yeah. And I don't think I got everything, but I got enough that I'm definitely intrigued. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. And I thought that, um, I mean, I don't know what every chapter is like, but these two chapters were really, really, really interesting. Um, and made me think very deep thoughts <laughs> and, uh, and that's awesome. So well, well chosen chapters. We'll, I, I'm guessing that we're probably going to jump around between a few different characters. Antimony will, I'm sure we'll touch on her, but there are some other really interesting kind of side characters that play really important roles <laughs> in these two chapters. So we'll be talking about a, f- a few different characters. Yeah. At the start, I said, we'd talk about Coyote and Jones cause these chapters kind of, I guess, give some insight or backstory into what I'm guessing were kind of um, ambiguous characters before. And here you're getting a little bit of, of history or, or uh, insights into their nature. Our producer, Andrew, has a quick question. Is, is this one released on, what, like a bi-weekly or a monthly schedule? Uh, my understanding is right now it updates a new page of a chapter about three times a week. Does that sound right to you, Todd? Uh, yes. It's been going since 2005. So you would get a chapter and... roughly each month? Though I saw, like, from what I saw scrolling through, some chapters are 15 pages long. Some chapters seem to be, like, 45 or 50 or 60 pages long. So each chapter is kind of, like, whatever he needs. Because he's not bound by a traditional, like, right. you've got to fill a 22-page comic or anything like that. So getting up to these chapters represents how many years of work? Ten. Well, these these ones are fairly recent, and it started in 2005. Is that what we yeah. said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so about ten years. I think these are from this year. Yeah, so this says, uh, on the website, it says, tune in on Monday for the start of the next chapter. Um, so you just wrapped up one, I guess? Uh, this is, well, I'm just looking at the beginning of chapter 39. So we're, oh, okay. tar- we're going to be talking about chapter 39 and chapter 40. And uh, are we ready to jump into that? Well, real quick, before we do so, listeners, if you would like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash protagonist, and you could offer a monthly amount that would be donated to us. I figure we give, on average, between four and five hours of content to you per month, so if you would like to pay, you know, 50 cents an hour and donate $2 a month, <laughs> it, it would help us out a bit. Uh, we've got some equipment needs coming our way, I think, in the near future. And and it's worth noting that the four or I, four or five hours of content represents probably fifteen to twenty hours uh, for each of us of effort. Yeah, but, going uh, into it, either preparing. consuming or summarizing, preparing, editing, S- scripting. Yeah, the editing. So so there's a chunk of time that goes into this. Our producer Andrew does the editing and. 
I'll just say we tend to give him a little extra, <laughs> a little extra material to work with that he has to trim down to make this about an hour. We are not one take wonders, let's say. <laughs> yeah, this is not recording straight to tape. <laughs> <laughs> Which may actually be shocking considering. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you expect a tighter doesn't... product, I guess. But, but again, the material we're giving him to work with, maybe it doesn't lend itself to a, a super tight product. <laughs> There's plenty that that's left on the on the cutting room floor. Listeners, if this sounds interesting to you, uh, it is all available on GunnerCrig.com for free. You could go read all 1,500 pages, or you can go read these two chapters. Worth spelling is that <laughs> web address. Yes, our producer gets a good point. GunnerCrig is spelled G-U-N-N-E-R-K-R-I-G-G. So GunnerCrig.com, and we'll have links to that in the show notes. And now, Todd is going to give us a full synopsis of these two chapters. Okay, this gets a little crazy, so just hang in there. Buckle up. This story begins with Antimony crossing a bridge with a young man who appears to be her friend. He is dressed in shining armor. She is dressed in relaxed pants and a t-shirt. When they reach the forest, she kicks off her shoes and is joined by a giant fox or wolf-faced creature called Isengrin. She climbs onto his shoulder. So Isengrin, imagine, like, Groot meets... A fox or a wolf. <laughs> rocket raccoon. <laughs> yeah, it kind of does look like Groot meets, like Groot and Rocket Raccoon. The body raccoon. of Groot and the head of Rocket Raccoon. Had a baby. And <laughs> this is what it looks like. Okay, so she climbs onto his shoulder and pulls her hair back. She's obviously pleased to see him. Uh, when she asks if they're going into town, Isengrin replies that Coyote wants to see her. Antimony then goes to see Coyote, a playful woodland spirit of some sort who jokes around with her and then begs for her to tell him stories about himself. Antimony, I just got to say real quick, listeners, this this coyote, I'm, I love trickster stories and I love coyote. Uh, this coyote, think Cheshire Cat, maybe, as far as how it's being presented? Yeah, I'd go with that. So Antimony's kind of miffed by this, but Coyote offers to tell her his great secret. Uh, Isengrin objects, but Antimony's intrigued. Despite her giant uh, wolf-faced friend's wishes, to the contrary, Antimony begins her story about Coyote's great strength. Uh, when the story is complete, Coyote tells Antimony that his great secret, the reason he loves humans, and the reason that Isengrin seethes so, uh, is that he, Coyote, does not exist. I don't know if I can ex- explain this any more clearly than I have just that, That's what he says, and that was my reaction right when... <laughs> at that moment in the story, I was like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where this is going now. So a uh, frustrated Antimony asks to go home, but Coyote has something more to tell her. Imagine, he begins, a man dying in the desert. He sees a coyote waiting to eat him, but he also sees in that coyote the power of God. This, says Coyote, is the curse of man, his disease. He looks at a stone and he sees a weapon, the figure of a woman, a symbol, the spark of inspiration. This man is cursed to go through the world asking questions and making up answers in the form of myths when no answer is readily available. Antimony tells him that she knows that myths are used as teaching tools, but Coyote tells her that even a myth created by a lone human is absorbed into the ether the realm of spirits like himself. Thus, Coyote only exists as a creation of man's imagination. This, he argues, makes man the most powerful creature in the universe. Uh, the conversation ends, and Coyote directs Antimony to find Isengrin, who has left them alone. She leaves uh, to find her great friend, and Coyote dissolves into the form of a rock. 
When Antimony catches up with Hisengrin, he's angry. He tells her Coyote's theory is demeaning. Coyote is a god and should be worshipped. He was not created by men. As Antimony and Isengrin talk, the wolfish god who, the, so Isengrin, uh, who controls the trees, remember this is sort of like Groot, uh, he grows increasingly angry. Then he goes into a rage and begins to chase uh, Antimony. She runs, uh, falls, pulls out a magic stick and breaks it. And within five seconds, her knight in shining armor sweeps in and rescues her. They escape, and the knight tells Antimony that she must be more careful about the gods in the forest. She says she needs to talk to some woman called Jones. Meanwhile, Isengrin lies broken, distraught, on the forest floor. Coyote sidles up to him, removes Isengrin's memory of the incident in the form of a small bowl, ball of glowing light. Sort of like a like Harry Potter pensive yes. kind of thing. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what uh, I was thinking. And then Isengrin then follows Coyote obediently into the forest. Yes, reader, that is chapter 39. <laughs> it's a little bizarre, but kind of cool. Uh, chapter 40 begins when Antimony bursts into a room and asks a woman there, what are you? Uh, with each succeeding page, we see this, this other woman. She's, I'm going to say young, youngish woman, like maybe 20s or 30s. She looks like she's maybe in her 20s or 30s. Uh, but with each succeeding page, we see this woman maintain her same age, uh, but the, but the scenes in which she finds herself, uh, are going back in time. So, uh, first she goes back by years, then decades, then several decades, and several centuries pass, and we see the same woman in different circumstances, but always the same age. We see her in Victorian England, we see her in the Jamestown colony, we see her in the Middle Ages, we see her millennia ago at Pompeii, we see her several millennia ago hunting buffalo with her bare hands, we see her in the previous epoch merged, uh, emerged naked from a glacier. We see her, her several eras ago emerge from the ocean floor with, uh, with like prehistoric, you know, life. Uh, we surrounded by, uh, sea creatures. Uh, we see her many eons ago emerge from a live volcano at what looks like the dawn of time. Uh, the formation of the earth. So now we're back in the room with Antimony and the mystery woman and Antimony asks incredulously, uh, you were there at the formation of the earth? The woman replies that she has no memory before that moment. She informs Antimony that she is not exactly immortal because she does not believe that she was ever alive, nor does she know what she is. She spent so long alone that when she witnessed the rise of humans, this tiny sliver of her existence, um, she felt she might no longer be alone because she recognized that humans were in some ways like her. She looks like a human. But the inner life of humans is full of emotions that she does not feel. She is, she says, like a rock. Except rocks can be broken and she cannot be harmed or marked in any way. She has immeasurable strength and a perfect memory, but little or no imagination and no ability to feel emotion or connect with humans. When Antimony asks uh, Jones, and that's the name of this woman, to tell her what the dinosaurs were like, the woman replies that she has decided to let humans figure things out for themselves. She spends time in, in the court, this is Antimony School, because it's safe and she allows herself to be studied. Then the two discuss Antimony's previous encounter with Coyote. Coyote had told Antimony to ask Jones about the stars in the sky. Jones tells her that the stars were there when she first came into existence. If Coyote's secret is true, that mythological beings are created from human imagination, then Jones herself would have to have been created by human imagination. But how could humans create things with their imagination that predate humanity itself? It is a great paradox, and, says Jones, a great demonstration of the power of the human mind, which has the power to shape the world. 
Uh, there follows some discussion about Coyote's possible desires to manipul- manipulate the ether, unleashing terrible power. Jones finally warns Antimony of the danger of manipulate, ma- manipulating the ether. And Antimony expresses thanks to Jones and tells her that she does not believe that uh, Jones is as emotionless as she says. Uh, Antimony believes that she that Jones has loved the people she has shared time with. Antimony asks if Jones is capable of smiling. Jones says she can mimic it but that the sight is unnerving to humans. She smiles for Antimony, who looks alarmed. Uh, the reader does not see the smile. And the story ends. That's the end of the chapter. Well done. Good Thank summaries you. of some <laughs> crazy, <laughs> crazy stories, but really interesting stories. And I think there's quite a bit of meat on these bones of these two chapters. Yeah, so really what we have are two great thought experiments. One uh, is launches us into this idea of the human imagination and um, and our ability as humans to create myths. And the second one uh, deals with this idea of immortality. I think those are the, the two big concepts that we have on the table, unless you see something else. No, I, I think that sums it up. And, and so the, I guess the issue that you run into when ever you have these kind of trickster god figures who litter <laughs> our stories. <laughs> um, you could think Loki in Avengers. You could think uh, Q in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yep. Like, like we seem to have a fascination with these um, godlike creatures that kind of toy with humanity, but at the same time mm-hmm. are fascinated by humanity. Um, but what you always run into whenever they are, you know, expounding these truths, like Coyote says, I'm going to tell you the secret, is the fact that these are almost always representative of tricksters and how much can you believe them right? Uh, within the story. So there's that kind of in the narrative element should uh, Antimony, is that her name? Antimony, uh-huh. Antimony really believe what she's just been told. Um, particularly when like as soon as Coyote tells it to her, her more trusted friend says, don't believe it. <laughs> right. But because of how it's presented and because there's this kernel that kind of makes sense within it and you can kind of see it in the way Coyote presents the story in the comic, like you want to believe Coyote at the same time. Yeah, it's a very seductive, what's a seductive thing to tell someone that they are all powerful, right? Yes, that, uh, well, and that, uh, I mean, it's kind of like getting at this, the specialness of humans, which is another thing that a lot of science fiction and a lot of fantasy, uh-huh. uh, you know, gets into is that there's all these magical races, but there's something about humans that is always, you know, something more or something unique. Right. Uh, that even though they maybe don't have the obvious magical powers of coyote, uh, or, you know, the elves or, you know, whatever it may be there, you know, there's something about this supposedly simple group that is going to make them special. Right. You can be bigger and faster and stronger and, uh, impervious to whatever, uh, you can be green or purple or have multiple appendages, uh, but, but nothing beats humans in the end. Right. And, and again, science fiction and fantasy both do this all the time. Yep. <laughs> so why do you think we do that, Todd, as you know, the makers <laughs> of these stories? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, you have this, um, these frames, right? So you have, uh, telling stories inside of stories, coyote, begs for antimony to tell him a story. So there's something about, about story, um, and the seductive power of stories in general. Um, what he's telling her is that humans create myths and that he himself is, is a myth. 
Um, and there's nothing really, I don't know, really super remarkable about that, uh, except that sometimes those myths come to have real power in our lives. And that's, I think that's the, it's where the rubber hits the road is when you see, um, what, what began as a story, um, influencing people in really meaningful ways. Um, and that can be exhilarating, uh, but it can also be kind of terrifying, um, to see the power of stories. And I think what's really interesting is that because this is told in this comic book form and we're seeing coyote do all these crazy things with his body where he like separates his head from his body, kind of like the Cheshire cat, like I said, like you, you just kind of view this as, um, you know, just, just this kind of fun fantasy element. But when you break it down to the description that you just gave, you see like the application <laughs> that he's, they're addressing some big ideas about the, the power of story and the power of myth, you know, kind of getting into even Campbellian or Jungian ideas uh-huh. as to, um, how influential story is on, on humanity. Yeah. And this is an interesting, um, it's interesting when you talk about myth, especially, um, to, uh, people who believe myth. <laughs> and, and I think that there are very few people, I, mean, I don't know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a group of humans that don't believe some kind of myth. Right. So myth could, like when you're talking about like defining stories that help to give values that help to give a sense of the shape of the world or how you perceive the world, that's going to cover everything from your sense of patriotism to, you know, religious, you know, beliefs, uh, to even like family, uh, you know, where, where your family came from and, you know, your family stories and those sorts of things. Like all of those could fall into the idea of like personally defining mythology. Yeah. Myth in some ways, uh, when I think about myth, I think of origin, so it's one way to kind of identify the myths that, that somebody believes, uh, would be to ask them, um, you know, like, where does your story begin? And, um, depending on your frame of reference, uh, and what is important to you, you can start your, you, you know, that, that story in different places. So you could say, um, you know, where does the United States begin? Well, some people would say, the U.S. as we know it begins uh, with the founding fathers and the revolution, but other people would say no. It really begins um, with Jamestown and the first, you know, uh, English colonists coming and pushing Native Americans on reservations. That was that's the origin. And other people would say no. It's the, the American Civil War. That's everything. <laughs> like everything goes back to that. And the country that we have after then is nothing like the country that we have before. Uh, but that's only just one, 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 uh, like one, one long narrative. Uh, there are also family narratives and there are business narratives and there are, um, like fields of knowledge narratives. <laughs> so it's like scientific narratives and myths yeah. about, um, Galileo and Copernicus and no, really the, really the key figure in all of this is Einstein, but really it's not. It really goes back to, um, and these are all, these are all origin stories. And it's really important if you're going to tell a story to know where the story starts. And, um, and so when we say myth, I, sometimes when I teach about myth, uh, I, people get kind of up in arms because we, there's a, there's a secondary definition of myth, which is a story that's not true. <laughs> 
Uh, and it doesn't have to be not true, but when you read something like, uh, like this, uh, Gunner Creek Court and, and the story of Coyote, and you realize the power that all of the stories that we have to tell have, and that some of them probably, you know, may, may or may not be true, but s- some of them certainly aren't. Uh, but there's real power and a creative power in the telling of stories. And that some stories that have been told that I dare say are not true, <laughs> uh, have had really powerful consequences on, on people and events. And so it's tricky. It's tricky to tease out what, uh, I don't know, myth. <laughs> I don't know. I just ran out of steam there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said uh, like like stories have this creative power, but I think it also has a defining power um, in how again an individual is going to view the world, but also view themselves and their place in the world. Uh huh. Well, and, and like we said at the start of the discussion, we I mean it's it's great big ideas, and without reading more, I don't know how how it all you know shakes out in Gunner Creek Court, but you do have to kind of question everything because the source of this is Coyote. And right. that's the... I, I love trickster figures in literature. I love, <laughs> you know, Puck in Summer Night's Dream. I love Loki in both mythology and in comic books. So um, that idea that they are going to be telling you truths, but also maybe truths that lead you down a bad path or truths that are, you know, that are half truths, half truths, you know, and you always have to kind of be questioning the information you receive from them. But at the same time, they are, these structure figures seem to be more knowledgeable than anyone else. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have the knowledge, but they're toying with you as they, they parse it out. Interesting. When you think about the hero's journey, what the role of the trickster is, it seems to me that tricksters are one of the one of the great things that tricksters do is they um, they push action along. So they're able to they're able to feed a protagonist information in a way that leads that protagonist to action, um, and they may they may do it better than than any other kind than a of mentor would. Or... Right? If some old wise sage comes and says, "Well." This is the great truth of the universe, and now you must follow it. Um, it's very different than a trickster coming and kind of whispering half truths in your ear <laughs> and playing on your um, your fears and your insecurities uh, in ways that that they know will get you because because they're not bound by the same uh, eth- ethics. I think that they're sometimes able to move people, (laughs) move people along better than, than people who are kind of straight talkers. Yeah. I think it's, um, for a writer, I think it must be fun to be able to play with that kind of character and, to to work with both, um, the kind of, I guess it's a devilish charm that a trickster figure has. Yeah. Uh, and and to try and successfully establish that and make you as a reader, like kind of want to believe, but still always have in the back of your mind that this probably isn't the most trustworthy character I'm, I'm talking about or talking Wait, with or reading he's, about. His identity is so fluid and the way that he, that, that Coyote in this story, he goes from, you know, weeping and begging and crying to turning into this raging monster to turning into kind of regular coyote creature and at the end, he's completely, um, he's completely like domesticated this huge, terrifying, raging tree wolf monster. 
<laughs> and and there's something really chilling in that in those last couple of of scenes uh, where he he extracts the memory from him and then uh, basically you know brainwashes him and and then they go walking off together. And I think uh, we probably need to give a little shout out to Tom Siddle's art in the in these sequences with Coyote. Like I, I like your, the word that you use, fluid. Like there's these are static images, but you feel emotion to to Coyote. Like it, it, the way his body is drawn, it, you, you almost feel like you're watching it constantly shifting, even though each one of these images is static. Yeah, and I, I guess I mean we need to move on to the second half of this. The, or the second chapter here, but I just think when you when you start to examine myth, a really important thing happens where you start to question myth, and and I think that that's really healthy to um to look to you know be able to examine not only other people's myths but your own myths, and um with as you know as clear an eye as possible. Um, and, and that's something that, that, that happened to me when I was reading this is I'm listening to Coyote and he says, you know, it's all just, it's something, it's, 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 it's ingrained in humans to see symbols in everything. Um, and so then, it, you know, it just gives me a chance to pause and say, Hmm, what are the symbols I see? And what are the symbols that I, that I could be seeing? And I just, I appreciate stuff that gives me cause to reflect like that. And not only do we see symbols, I think we create symbols. Producer Andrew, uh, we just had a little technical break. <laughs> and in the break, he was talking to me about, um, like, we, we make this uh, this scientific myth about an apple falling on Newton. And now an apple kind of has this new symbolic meaning. Mm-hmm. Because of that story about inspiration, you know, how, whatever the validity of that actual story is, we now culturally use, you know, Newton's apple or the idea of an apple to mean idea. And, and even now, you know, it's been carried on into technology and all these other, you know, these scientific endeavors. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Jones a little. <laughs> this, this immortal being. And again, a quick shout out to the art. I really enjoyed the, the backwards passage of time. Oh, I did too. And, and the way it was presented. I thought it was amazing, and um, it kind of it took me a while to figure out what was going on or to realize what was going on. Me too. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just so it just seems so odd, and and then it, it it's like well, it looks almost like a kind of Benjamin Button kind of thing, where she's staying the same age, but other or it looks like maybe she's getting younger. Or you're not really sure exactly what's going on, uh, but you just see see the same woman in these different scenes going back through time and then, and then really back through time. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, 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 there's this one panel of just the eye in the muck at the bottom of the ocean uh-huh. of her eye staring out. And like, uh, as much as I liked the coyote, like that's the image that probably stuck with me more as far as the artistic, uh, rendering that we had in this, in these two chapters. It's really, it's really great. And then the same eye in the lava, Mm-hmm. Kind of coming the the face emerging from the lava at the at the birth of the of the planet. It's really, <laughs> and then you're just and then you're just. I mean, think about that for a minute. The Earth is four billion years old, four and a half billion years old, and even how long was it before there was even a microbe? That yeah, well, and, and she has um, a perfect she has a perfect memory. Yes, and, and uh, Coyote calls her the Wandering Eye 
because she just observes. Uh-huh. That's you know seems to be her role. But and then, I, just that, like, to let that sink in the the loneliness. And well, and I think that I mean staggering. Yes, and I think that may be why she has no emotion. <laughs> like, <laughs> what would you do or develop as a personality with that amount of time of just observing? the earth form <laughs> and then slowly, so slowly life, you know, coming about and then slowly and so slowly evolving. Yeah, I just think there's a really interesting, it's like when you sit in your science class and they have the, the timeline and it, and it shows, you know, so much, this is how long and everything's kind of comparative. And, and then at the very end, you see this little sliver that's humanity and it's like, Hmm, that's interesting. But this is such an, this is such a different take on that to put one sentient conscious human from the very, very beginning and then let her just sit and wait for three and a half billion years before there's even life on the earth. That's, that's a, it's an amazing, I don't know. I just, that one idea got inside of my head and it kind of messed with me for a while. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, like trying to ponder that kind of loneliness. That's going to fester. <laughs> um, well, and then I, I also love the idea of this paradox that, okay, if you believe, if you accept coyote's point that the gods are actually born out of human imagination mm-hmm. and then Joan says, well, then how can I, you know, predate humanity? I'm, what you're really getting into, I guess, is questions of, of like, where did all of this creation come from? <laughs> like, yeah. Where, you know, how, how did, if, if humans are creating these gods, then what actually made the earth, you know, in, in this world? And I, again, we've only read these two chapters. I don't know what answers <laughs> are being provided within the, the series, but I think it's an interesting thing to start to think about. Yeah. It's, um, I don't even know where to where to start with this. I'm still just stuck on her loneliness. I'm sorry. I just I think it's heartbreaking. And 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 then to ask and then when she says I don't even know what I am. Like I don't I don't know that I'm immortal because immortality would imply the fact that I was ever alive and I just don't remember. It's just such an interesting take on existence. Well, and I love this because it um, flips what is the classic, um, trope for these kinds of characters in, in story, like in our myths, in our, you know, in our popular culture and all these things, like the ancient beings are the ones with the most wisdom because they've experienced the most. Uh-huh. And she, even with all of that experience still feels somewhat like a blank slate. Yeah. She's the most ancient and yet emotionally she feels completely empty. But then, but then antimony tells her, I I don't think that you are, which is really, it's, you know, here's this, this human that's been on the earth for what, 18 years, 17, oh, she's still in high school, right? So six, maybe 16, 15, 16, 17 years. Would we guess that that's how old yeah, antimony yes, is? I, yeah, I, I think so. And, and here she is telling this, this, uh, a, not what they say something about her strength. She does have some kind of, I can't remember if she has super strength or she if she's just, yeah, that- she, she can't be harmed at all. She's the people have tried to kill her and burn her as a witch and it just never works. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but 
she's just for antimony to say, you know what? I think you're wrong. I think you do have emotions. (laughs) (laughs) And then the smile, this, this enigmatic smile that we don't see, but the kind of chills antimony, just, there's just a lot of, of enigmatic, interesting things, no answers at all Mm. (laughs) in this chapter, just lots of really deep questions. And then this, this overarching sense of loneliness, um, that, that I think is, I think it's important there in some ways. Um, Jones reminds me of data from Star Trek, the next Uh generation. Um, I've mentioned before, I, I love one of my regular podcasts is mission log. And they had just talked about an episode in which data was on one of his many quests to, to be more human. And one of the co-hosts on mission log was saying, the fact that he wants to be more human means that he has, you know, something within him right. <laughs> more than just programming. Uh, cause that desire is an emotion, you know, and data all the time is complaining about being emotionless. Uh, but, but that desire to be more human means that he's feeling something beyond what his initial programming was. And, um, you know, data, he's an interesting character to think about. I think in Star Trek Next Generation, he hasn't been, a, you know, anything like Jones where he's been around forever, but he has that potential to, you know, exist unchanged beyond all of the crew around him. Right. As a character and, and to maintain or retain that perfect memory of everything that he observes and, and be kind of, you know, a wandering eye for the Star Trek universe. Um, but Jones, I, do we get any sense that she wants to feel anything the way data wants to feel anything in this one chapter? I don't think so. Yeah, I think I I didn't either that she so data has this this desire but she is just resigned it, it almost feels like or just is I guess not not even resigned she just is. <laughs> well you suggested you suggested earlier that maybe that part of her maybe um this emotional emptiness that she feels is because of the loneliness just yes. because of the fact that she's but but she well, does have a perfect memory and she doesn't ever remember, remember. having f- emotions. Right. What I guess this gets into some of the ideas of like, where do our emotions come from? Like she observed nothing (laughs) that would have given her emotion. Um, you know, so how much of our, of our reactions and our, our kind of trained joy and sadness, you know, come from outside inputs. And that's a really interesting thought. So you're saying that or suggesting possibly that emotion comes from that it's trained. Or... I think some of it is. I think there's definitely some that's just natural. I mean, you can you can make it, you know, see a newborn, you know, or a fairly newborn, you know, smile and just react. But often that you know they're reacting to their mother's face and or their father's face and those sorts of things. So I don't... even a, even a newborn or or a, a non-human animal like a like a dog or a, um, you see, you know, something something like what we would call emotion. You see joy. Yeah. Um, you see playfulness and sadness in, in those, those kind of, but there's, I mean, they're, they, you know, all of our experiences were, we're immediately receiving external inputs and she really had very little in the way of external input for a very long time. It's interesting. The thought of pain, like if she's incapable of feeling physical pain. So she wouldn't have had any discomfort even, you know, anything to. Well, she emerged naked out of lava. Yes. 
Right. So, so, so she wouldn't have had any, you know, like, like when we say, like, even a newborn can, you know, can be upset. Uh, that's often, you know, a reaction to this external stimuli. If she's not right. feeling physically that kind of external stimuli, what's going to happen to her internally? Okay, I have two thoughts. I know we're getting kind of close to wrapping up. Um, I'm sorry, I'm I I can't get over this this just like heartache that I feel uh, for her loneliness. Even though it doesn't bother her, it bo- it bothers me. You have astonishing levels of empathy, Todd. <laughs> um, there's a there's a quote by uh, Kafka in which he says this thing. He says. Um, it's a letter that he wrote to a friend called Oscar Pollock. And he says, I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for? So that it will make us happy as you write? Good Lord, we would be happy precisely if we had no books. And the kind of books that make us happy are the kind we could write ourselves if we had to. But we need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from anyone, like a suicide. A book, and this is the, this is the famous part, a book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. That is my belief. And this part of me is like, whoa, Kafka, you need to read something fun. Because <laughs> that's, that's pretty intense. Uh, but, but there are times when I read something and it just kind of breaks me up inside. And I think that's really healthy. <laughs> and that's like my biggest sort of takeaway from, from this story is, is just that feeling like, man, um, that's loneliness. <laughs> and then to let that just sit for a while and, and kind of think about it. I think it's valuable. Stop. What would you do if you had, uh, Several billion years by yourself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I remember seeing a story about um, a mailman, I want to say in France, who picked up shiny rocks every day and then started building a wall out of them. And now he has kind of this glorious uh, local attraction <laughs> that he just <laughs> built a little bit day by day. Imagine if you had billions of years <laughs> in which you could start building some structure, even from simple things like yeah. just shiny rocks. You can make something awesome. <laughs> yeah, and she didn't. I mean, the, the, yeah, she, which, she doesn't and have she says, any desire to. She says she has no imagination and or very. She says she has little imagination and no emotions. So she doesn't want to go build the you know walls of shiny rock. <laughs> no, nope. she just walks around and observes stuff. But she 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 finds people, you know, like in these flashbacks. I couldn't. I, I can't remember. I should go double check. But does she have a family in any of them? I know she is with some people and in the flashbacks. It kind of re- felt to me kind of like uh, the Doctor mm-hmm. uh, in Doctor Who, where she finds companions that she can be with for a while, and she stays with them until until they're gone, and then she finds somebody else to stay with. And right now she's in the she's in the court, and she's she's okay there. So but, I gotta say, I just. I I want to know more about this court itself because from the descriptions of that, that's like a science academy, basically. Yeah. But but these two chapters are really all about the fantasy side of this universe that is being built, and I want to find out more about the science side. So I do well, need to read more. Have you did you read any of chapter one? No. Does it feel so, so different? It's re- it's really cool. The st- art style is really different. So I I glanced at the art style in a couple earlier chapters, and you can tell the evolution of um of the art. Like it, it just changes through, you know, years of practice. 
So in chapter one, she says, Gunner, Gunner Creek Court does not look much like a school at all. It closer resembles a large industrial complex than a place of learning. And, um, basically the story is she finds that, uh, a shadow, little shadow monster has, has latched onto her shadow and is following her around. And she has to help this shadow get into the forest. And the only way that she can do it is, is by building a robot. She's like, well, uh, the only logical thing to do is build a robot. But I need, uh, Charming. I need, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so she says, I need to, uh, I need to find some spare robot parts. So, well, she says, first of all, I don't know anything about robot, robots or robotics. So I need to go to the library. <laughs> and so she goes to the library and then she says, now all I need are some spare robot parts. So she goes, so there are all these doors marked. One is marked pencils, pens, computers, <laughs> chairs, desks rulers and then there's one that says spare robot parts <laughs> but but like nailed onto the top of it like some teacher came by and nailed on top of it it says no so it says no spare robot parts <laughs> <laughs> and so then she she like opens the door and it's just full of spare robot parts <laughs> spare number 13 there's a box so she gets out all the all the robot parts and she assembles this little robot <laughs> it's very cool it's just charming but that feels so different from this world that we have. And I love the idea that those worlds coexist. That, you know, there's the spare robot r- part room in the same world as there's this coyote creature that has a Groot wolf-headed monster <laughs> that talks to it. And inside the Science Academy is this ancient character who doesn't know where she came from, what her origin is. And maybe humans invented her and put her back at the beginning of the Earth. And we don't know how or why. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty, it's amazing. It's amazing to think that this character is the same antimony that we see later, partly, partly because stylistically she looks so different. And, and I, I wouldn't even say that the art is poor at the beginning. It's just different. It's just a different style. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cool that an, that an artist can feel at liberty to, over the course of 10 years, change the way that he draws character. I mean, it would be, it would be like Robert Jordan suddenly wildly changing his writing style, his narrative style in the wheel of time series halfway through just, just cause like, why not? <laughs> I think it's, it's, I think it's really... part of the freedom that web comics give. Yeah, you know. yeah. And I like it a lot. So right. a final... I, Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I say I was just going to give my final thought. Okay. A final thought before um, we wrap up the story. I did want to say that to me, this, the existence of this 1500 page web comic is like a testimony of the value of doing a little bit of something that you love <laughs> and not letting it, you know, just remain an idea in your head. Yeah. Um, so I, I've mentioned a couple of times, like I want to write a novel and the only completed manuscript I have is cause I spent several months where I said, I'm not going to bed until I've written at least a half page a day, I think is what I had. Uh-huh. And that's how I got a finished manuscript. And then I have all these other ideas that are just that ideas in my head. Cause I haven't taken or, or made the effort to say, I'm going to write at least a half page a, a day. You know, if you do that for a year, you can get it all out. But it's so easy to not do that, and it just remains something that's inside of you. But to get it out there, it's not all going to, you know, spill out. And, you know, if I just had a weekend, I could get it all out there. That's just not going to happen. You just got to sit there and start working at it. And doing a little bit of something you love uh, can end up with something really big and really large. And in this case, it seems, you know, pretty impactful on on his life. On um let me double check the name. I want to get his name right. Tom Siddell. Uh, Tom Siddell's life uh, to have been putting in that effort to, to tell a story that, that he had inside of him. 
Yeah, it's like we have this um, this image in our head of you know the muses come and they feed something to you and then you're illuminated and so you run in your room and you sit down in a fever and you write the great American novel in three days. And it's just, I think that by and large, if you talk to people that are successful creators of stuff, they just do a little bit every day. And if you want to be an artist, then you create art every single day. And if you want to write novels, then you write on your novel every single day. And if you want to do a webcomic, then you draw pictures every day and then you post them online. And that's the scary thing is there are lots of people that, that write things for themselves or they draw pictures for themselves. Uh, but it takes a lot of guts to just put it all out there and say, here's my thing, world, internet. <laughs> I hope you like it. And, um, and he, you know, when he did, when he started this, there was no guarantee that it would be successful. He just wanted to do it. And, and 10 years later, he's 1500 pages into it and he's, it's his full-time job, which is really cool. Any final thoughts about the story itself, Todd? I think it's delightful, and I really would like to dig uh, d- more deeply into it. Since you described that first chapter, I have to go read that. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, the I, I'm trying to think of how to describe the art that we were looking at versus the art that's in the early chapters. The early chapters art, it kind of feels like, and I don't want this to be a turnoff in any way, but um, there are these c- cartoons, like Nickelodeon cartoons, where... Um, the style just feels kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel polished, you know? This isn't uh, Umberto Ramos or John Cassidy. <laughs> it just feels uh, really stylized and s- sort of simple, uh, but not childish. Uh, it's, good, it's good art, and it's, and it's easy to read. It doesn't feel super distracting. Uh, but it just changes so much over time. It, I think the later stuff that we were reading feels a lot more polished. That's the word I was going to use exactly. Is, is when I looked back, I thought, I, like you said, I don't think there's anything, you know, that's going to turn you off from reading those first ones. But there's just a polish to these later chapters. I think it's just you know part of the Malcolm Gladwell putting in your ten thousand hours to become an expert at something. He's done that now. You know, by doing. Uh, you know, a page or two pages or three pages a week. He's put in his 10,000 hours and there's a, an expert level polish that comes in at the end. Yeah. And I think when you mentioned it to me, you said, yeah, I looked at some of the early chapters and it, it, the art is different. You can tell that he's progressed over time. I was expecting for the early chapters to be like bad Uh and and they aren't at all. It's really good. And even the art is really uh, good and charming in a way. Uh, but it's just, it's different. Yeah, it's it's you can tell his his style has has changed. But again, I think I don't think it's unfair to say there's more polish in these later ones. No, not at all. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review there. It helps us to get more listeners and it also makes us feel better about ourselves when, you know, you leave a positive review. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com and that's also where to find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections or feedback by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at 
at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. And that's where most of the discussion about our episode seems to take place. So if you are enjoying this, please go to facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and join the discussions there. And if you'd like to buy a topic for us to discuss or support us with a little financial donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. And, uh, I didn't have my script up. Oh, it's on the wrong page. (laughs) (laughs) One take wonders. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Making it easy on our editor.